Now I sit around pretending that I'm busy. How do you pull that off? I always look annoyed. <laughs> well, when you look annoyed all the time, people think that you're busy. <laughs> think about it. Hello and welcome again to the Basis Point Podcast. I'm Brennan Harris. Um, listening back on the two previous episodes, I just, this last week, I uh, got my episodes published on all of the major podcasting platforms, like Spotify and Apple Podcasts and all that stuff, and so I was listening to the last two episodes in my queue of other podcasts that I'm subscribed to, and I realized my voice is so freaking slow and that's got to be brutal to listen to so um i think it's probably because i'm from idaho uh i know they've done studies where they've like measured how fast someone's walking and using that they can like tell how populated of an area they live in people in more populated areas walk faster and it's kind of like a linear relationship between how fast you walk and how big the city you live in is so I've spent my whole life growing up in like a really small town um, to like the town I live in now is, I mean, it's like the second or third biggest city in Idaho, but it's still freaking small. So uh, I guess I'll try to do better at that and talk a little faster because, um, yeah, that's just that's killer uh, to listen to me ramble on slowly. I'll try to talk faster. Okay, in the book this week, we're finally into chapter one of The Wealth of Nations, and this chapter is on the division of labor. So cool. Adam Smith, right off the bat, gets into like some examples of different uh, industries that have employed the division of labor and how that's impacted the productivity. So the first example he gives is pin making, like making like uh, sewing pins. He claims that if the average person tried to make a pin, you know, just like pointed little rod of metal with a plastic or ivory end, um, you know, little pin head, that they would maybe be able to make one in a day if they like spent all day working on it like if they had to go from raw materials to a finished pin a person might be able to make one i don't know like how he determined that or whatever but i'll take his word for it but then he said that once you divide up the tasks you know like the guy who draws out the metal the guy who sharpens it the guy who roughs up the end to put the head on the pin and then there's like three different operations to like uh, create and mount the little pinhead. Um, that if you separate those tasks and have one person focus on each one, so just one guy is sharpening it, one guy is roughing up the end to place the head, one guy's making the pinhead, one guy's putting it on. If you separate all those tasks out, that a group of 10 guys involved in that process can make 48,000 pins in a day. And so if you divide the number of pins made by the number of guys involved, each person contributes to the manufacture of 4,800 pins. 
versus 1, or maybe 10. So you have like either 480 or 4,800 times the productivity in production just because you've separated out the tasks and given each guy uh, a thing to do. He claims that farming doesn't really lend itself to the division of labor, that it doesn't make as much sense to like have one guy um, like cutting hay and another guy bailing it up and another guy like transporting it. He says it makes more sense in farming that one farmer does kind of all the general tasks of farming. And I don't know exactly, he doesn't go into a ton of detail on why that is. Um, and I imagine that that doesn't really apply to modern agriculture, but uh, he makes that claim. Um, and he also talks a little bit about how crops produced in different countries are all of kind of the same quality. So like corn grown in Poland versus Britain is just as good and it fetches about the same price on the market. Um, and so he kind of lays out agriculture as this kind of like equal ground among nations that the manufacturing industry in Britain kind of kills Poland, but they all can grow wheat and corn and whatever. You know, uh, you know the Scottish and the British might be better at growing more of it, but the crops themselves aren't necessarily better quality and all that kind of stuff. So he kind of sets agriculture aside as a different kind of industry than like manufacturing. The whole chapter is on the division of labor, and he kind of gets into why dividing labor up into simpler tasks is such a powerful strategy for um, manufacturing. Uh, and he, he kind of splits it into three main reasons. The first is that it increases the dexterity of the workers who each accomplish their own uh, little part of the process. He says that it saves time that is normally lost when you are switching between tasks. And then the third thing he says is that it fosters the invention of labor-saving machinery, which is a really interesting... He gives a couple examples there. So I'm just going to give an example of each of these from the book. So the first example is that it increases the dexterity of the workers. Um, and he kind of goes back to the pin-making example. He gives another similar example um, uh, about manufacturing nails. Smith claims that, like, a common blacksmith who was, you know, trained, apprenticed, and then was a master blacksmith, if he didn't know anything about making nails, he could maybe make two to three hundred nails a day. Um, and then he says that a blacksmith who was specifically trained at making nails himself could make eight to a thousand nails a day. So, you know, two or three times the productivity of like an untrained blacksmith, specifically at making nails. But he said that he observed factories where there were just these kids, you know, from like, like their late teens, early twenties, who were not blacksmiths. They were not trained um, in smithery or whatever. All they were trained to do was their little tiny part of making a nail. You know, like in this factory where the labor was divided into separate tasks, where one guy, you know, cut the blanks, and then another guy sharpened them, another guy put the head on the nail. He said this group of 
basically boys doing this work, each of them could make 2,300 nails a day. So, like, twice or more what a trained blacksmith could do. Because they became experts at their tiny part of the task, much more than the blacksmiths, even though he had this greater breadth of knowledge, um, he didn't have the the expertise at each individual task like these boys did who had been working at it for just a couple of years. So that's how Smith describes or, or illustrates the increase in dexterity that comes from the division of labor. He also, the second point to me seems like the flimsiest, um, but Smith says that you lose time as you switch tasks, which I'm sure is true on some level, but the way he describes it is really funny. So I'm just going to um, insert a little excerpt from the book here. And just the language he uses is hilarious, but here it goes. A man commonly saunters a little in turning his hand from one sort of employment to another. When he first begins the new work, he is seldom very keen and hearty. His mind, as they say, does not go to it and for some time he rather trifles than applies to good purpose. The habit of sauntering and of indolent, careless application, which is naturally, or rather necessarily, acquired by every country workman who is obliged to change his work and his tools every half hour and to apply his hand in twenty different ways almost every day of his life, renders him almost always slothful and lazy and incapable of any vigorous application even on the most pressing occasions. And the third uh, point that he makes that actually is very compelling to me is that the division of labor fosters invention because it focuses a worker's attention on a repetitive, simple task, that this actually frees up the mental capacity of that worker to find more innovative ways to accomplish the specific procedure that they're responsible for, and that Actually, some of the greatest inventors who find labor-saving solutions to manufacturing processes were the workers who were tasked with like completing that in a manual way. Um, so Smith says this. Men are much more likely to discover easier and readier methods of attaining any object when the whole attention of their minds is directed towards that single object than when it is dissipated among a great variety of things. So Smith gives an example that the first steam engines had these open channels that for the steam engine to work had to be alternately like open and closed um, during operation. Um, but that wasn't built into the machine, like the steam engine didn't handle that automatically. They'd have to hire kids to sit there and open and close these valves with like lids. And at some point, one of the boys figured out a way to like tie the two caps together on the steam engine and connect it to the crankshaft so that it just happened automatically. Because just because they didn't want to work, they didn't want to sit there and and do it. And so, and that was, uh, Smith says, you know, the greatest improvement that was ever made to the steam engine was the result of a little boy wanting to go and, you know, shoot marbles with his friends or whatever. Uh, and so in, in this way, Smith says that this is how innovation happens generally in um, 
in manufacturing is it's like a bottom-up kind of process of discovery and innovation. Uh, he does say, though, sometimes philosophers, or what he calls men of speculation, um, are able to make contributions to manufacturing um, just by you know, sheer mental effort and observing how something works and thinking about how it could be improved. Basically, he's describing uh, engineering. Um, and he actually applies the division of labor to, like, this type of work, of, like, mental work. Engineers can become so specific to, like, one aspect of manufacturing or whatever that most engineers I know are were so, so, like, our areas of um, expertise are so focused. If you look at, uh, like, what an aerospace engineer works on, who works for, like, an, a company like SpaceX or NASA, the tiny single components and that no one will ever know about or understand have teams of engineers dedicated to just, like, you know, tiny parts of control systems or like parts of the material, those are so subdivided that it's hard to even measure the contribution that a single engineer or manufacturing line worker or whatever makes to the process because they're just such tiny, tiny little parts. Um, But Smith says, and this is really the magic of the division of labor, he says, because everyone produces everything so abundantly, you know, you don't, it's not like everyone's making their own stuff that they're using. They're making thousands or tens of thousands of times more of a certain product than they would ever use. That the whole economy becomes abundantly supplied with goods. And that, you know, I make 40,000 nails, but then I trade all the nails that I don't need, which are pretty much all of them probably, for things that I do need. And you know, you have this massive network of goods and then being traded so that now there's just so much more stuff and so much more wealth for everyone because everyone's so productive. Uh, and I'm just going to end with, it's a long quote extracted here from the book, but it's so good and it's so well written. And I think it captures really this whole chapter in the magic of the division of labor that Smith, I think, is trying to get across. So we'll end with this. It is the great multiplication of the productions of all the different arts in consequence of the division of labor, which occasions in a well-governed society that universal opulence which extends itself to the lowest ranks of the people. Observe the accommodation of the most common artificer or day laborer in a civilized and thriving country, and you will perceive that the number of people of whose industry a part, though but a small part, has been employed in procuring him this accommodation, exceeds all computation. The woolen coat, for example, which covers the day laborer as coarse and rough as it may appear, is the produce of the joint labor of a great multitude of workmen. The shepherd, the sorter of the wool, the wool-comber or carder, the dyer, the scribbler, the spinner, the weaver, the fuller, the dresser, with many others, must all join their different arts in order to complete even this homely production. 
How many merchants and carriers besides must have been employed in transporting the materials from some of those workmen to others who often live in a very distant part of the country? How much commerce and navigation in particular, how many shipbuilders, sailors, sailmakers, rope makers must have been employed in order to bring together the different drugs made use of by the dyer, which often come from the remotest corners of the world? What a variety of labour, too, is necessary in order to produce the tools of the meanest of those workmen. To say nothing of such complicated machines as the ship of the sailor, the mill of the fuller, or even the loom of the weaver, let us consider only what a variety of labour is requisite in order to form that very simple machine, the shears with which the shepherd clips the wool. The miner, the builder of the furnace for smelting the ore, the feller of the timber, the burner of the charcoal to be made use of in the smelting house, the brickmaker, the bricklayer, the workmen who attend the furnace, the millwright, the forger, the smith, must all of them join their different arts in order to produce them. Were we to examine in the same manner all the different parts of his dress and household furniture, the coarse linen shirt which he wears next his skin, the shoes which cover his feet, the bed which he lies on, and all the different parts which compose it, the kitchen grate at which he prepares his victuals, the coals which he makes use of for that purpose, dug from the bowels of the earth and brought to him, perhaps, by a long sea and a long land carriage, all the other utensils of his kitchen, all the furniture of his table, the knives and forks, the earthen or pewter plates upon which he serves up and divides his victuals, the different hands employed in preparing his bread and his beer, the glass window which lets in the heat and the light and keeps out the wind and the rain, with all the knowledge and art requisite for preparing that beautiful and happy invention, without which these northern parts of the world could scarce have afforded a very comfortable habitation, together with the tools of all the different workmen employed in producing those different conveniences. If we examine, I say, all these things, and consider what a variety of labour is employed about each of them, we shall be sensible that, without the assistance and cooperation of many thousands, the very meanest person in a civilised country could not be provided even according to what we very falsely imagine the easy and simple manner in which he is commonly accommodated." Compared, indeed, with the more extravagant luxury of the great, his accommodation must no doubt appear extremely simple and easy. And yet it may be true, perhaps, that the accommodation of an European prince does not always so much exceed that of an industrious and frugal peasant as the accommodation of the latter exceeds that of many an African king, the absolute masters of the lives and liberties of ten thousand naked savages. Lately, I've been drifting aimlessly. Now that you mention it. But I finally realized what's missing in my life. Structure. And at Brant Leland, I'm getting things done. And I love the people I'm working with. How much are they paying? No, 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 no. I don't want any pay. I'm doing this just for me. Clearly. So, uh, what do you do down there all day? TCB. You know, taking care of business. <laughs> Yep, I gotta go. All right, sir. I'll see you tonight. Forget my briefcase. <laughs> well, what do you got in there? Crackers. 